What's up, everybody? Welcome to Actual Eye Podcast. We are back. And in this episode, we are going to be covering episode 21 of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. This episode is going to be on Martin Luther and Descartes. Yeah, so uh, last episode, um, we discussed this an- another massive shift um, post Hellenistic period. Um, which we went from a conformity and transcendence relationship with the nature of God into something else. And that something else would be, say, like creating a space for God to move into you. So a descending instead of ascending through conforming to the universe and what is most accurately now it's creating this space for God to flow into. And I guess that's the word valor we use for that. Um, yeah, and we our our thinking starts to change more into the will opposed to the reason. So it's it's will against will, mm-hmm. and God n- now becomes a willful God, not a reasonable God. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So assertion versus reason to be an assertive force. And, and, you know, this, I guess, would mean that God is not bound by rationality either. So now you have a irrational God on top of it all, you know, um, yeah, it's not necessarily totally ambiguous. the best direction that mm-hmm. we're going in. Um, um, yeah, so and there's this idea that we make order through language, you know, we order the universe through our language, you know, you, you can see this to a certain extent, like, you know, beneficially in like math, you know, math being the language of the universe, if you will. But, um, but that goes back to the, not last episode, but the episode before last, um, going into a more Ar- Aristotelian framing where the definition of the word is more important than this, the action of speaking the word. If that makes sense, you know, that, that it's more of like, you know, like each word means this accurately, this, this, and this, and this opposed to the engagement and experience you get from reciting these words and these passages that you'd have in, I guess the pre Aristotelian or even the, um, what'd it be? The, uh, Eastern Orthodox, I guess what ended up turning into the Eastern Orthodox church, but you know, the East and the West split. And that's what we we're talking about two episodes ago. And this is a continuation on language as well. Yes, yes. And there's will in the words. Um, so we got to a period of time, the Black Death, you know, the, the apocalypse, you know, all the bad things happening. You know, a very, very bleak point in time. Um, and so there was a failing of many institutions, you know, you know, you're the institution of your, you know, your your kings and your governments and all that, but also the church itself was failing. And, you know, and like nowadays, you can, you can see the similar thing. We're losing faith in our institutions now. So, you know, um, not to compare to living after the Black Death to now or anything like that. It's not, you know, apples to apples in that case. But still, you can kind of empathize with that feeling of this institutionalized breakdown on top of a changing of how we see the universe and ourself in it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
because now you know at this point in time it is you know the earth is this cruel prison and you know god is a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass or i forget it's what like that where it's like we're yeah. flying through a purposeless universe mm-hmm. and as Verveki says we're like islands of meaning in a meaningless mm-hmm. or purposeless universe and what a strange conundrum what a strange place to find oneself yeah. in so this was a total switch of our existential worldviews people around the world now started to see themselves as totally separate from this dead inert mm. environment mm-hmm. previously the environment was seen to be as imbued with the spirit of logos of god of the divine and this was very much our prevailing way of looking at the world mm-hmm. but around this time of the of the schism of christianity and the beginning of the scientific uh, revolution we have this dichotomy or this division this break that occurs in our own minds mm-hmm. And well, that, that confusion, it comes because we changed from the idea of ascent and self-transcendence mm-hmm. in religion. Self-transcendence just totally disappears from religion at this point. Yeah. Wisdom as a way to educate and grow through self-transcendence for, to gain meaning in life, that's no longer the idea of religion. Now it's about God. So it's no longer about you coming up. No, you have to open it's, the space it's for It's now God about too. you opening the space. And so there, there is a truth in here about opening space for God to live through, but it gets taken to a very self-centered place. Mm -hmm. And particularly like at this point in time where we have the Black Death and a lot of people died off, there's a huge labor shortage. Mm -hmm. So there are now new niches for people to occupy. And there's this level of self-worth, this idea of self-worth that comes into play Mm -hmm. and that you can impose your own order on things and be, you know, self-made man and, Start doing that stuff, and you know, mm-hmm. this is the like, very early seeds of what That's we... what happens, because self-negation becomes very important. It, we're not supposed to resist God's will, his agapic love. We must stop resisting and make space in our vessel for God to flow in and through. So this is where wisdom is still working. Yeah, it's sure. the turn that we make after this point well, I think all, where we lost ourselves. I think all these schisms and breaks within mm-hmm. certain types of thinking are both healthy. It's because, like, yeah. you know, you get one one... We, we realize something on another level, and then it causes a, a break. break in our current worldview, and so you we get have to a, reframe it. Yeah, and and we, what we did in our reframing seems that we yeah. were off this, this round. Well, if you go too far into one end of the break, because I still think it's valid that mm-hmm. you can really achieve a high level of graceful living in this world by learning how to conform to how the world actually is and by trans, transcending through I'd agree with your that. life. Yeah. But... You do also have to open, and, and I, I hate using this term because the hippies ruined the new age hippies ruined it. But you know, <laughs> hold space. You know, holds. But you have to hold hold a space in yourself for things to come in, even mm-hmm. if it's just intellectual ideas or you know other things. But still, yeah, that to is have, a good term. I like that. You know, yeah, yeah. it is a good term. Sorry, new agey hippies, but <laughs> I heard that word so much, and I'm just like, okay, okay, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, we're holding space. Yes, okay, thank you, thank you, love you. <laughs> Um, so now it's a battle of wills between individuals and, you know, God is almost just this arbitrary power. And perhaps if you could show some type of divinity and you hold the most space, then you have the most arbitrary power, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right now the faculty of will becomes more important. It's not God's reason that overlaps 
this new model of a battle of wills becoming a central idea of our reality. It's this idea of God's will. Um, Eckhart talked on this. The faculty of will becomes very central in his thinking. God's will supersedes his reason. He's not bound by rationality. That's why the rational ascent through reason is God. Mm-hmm. So we can't tr- self-transcend through wisdom anymore through religion. Yeah. How can we see? So we see. So the and the way that we see God is essential to how we see ourselves. Sure. As we form this grammar of culture, and this grammar of culture is still alive today. So the way that we think of ourselves is even if we're not personally religious, for Bakey makes this point, mm-hmm. we're still subject to this grammar and this way of thinking. Sure. Yes. Yeah. This, this is so deep in our culture. Well, call it God, call it the universe, call it whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a believer that God never changed. We, our understanding of the nature of all things has changed. Yes, absolutely. Um, and evolved. Yeah. So we're not necessarily evolving God. We are evolving our perception of what the possibility of God is. Because if God, in ev- you know, if the most infinite of everything, a.k.a. God, for this argument is something if it is everything it is unnameable mm-hmm. you can't put a name to it you can't put concrete definitions to it you, it can't just be one thing well because it's everything but yeah. then what are what are, what characteristics of it are we talking about are we talking yeah, once about once you start putting two form of definitions mm-hmm. on it then it, it becomes something you be, can fight over and it ceases to actually, to actually have be its, god to be pointing to yeah. the actual thing which is this infinite thing that has no perhaps boundaries. perhaps we diminish god with our definitions of god sure um, but okay. So at this yeah. So if we, as long as we're cognizant of the fact that we're mm-hmm. pointing to and we're celebrating the absolute, which yeah. is always going to be beyond our knowing. Yeah. Well, so at this point in time, we're now starting to get this, um, this, you know, that the aristocracy is in the way and the middle class is going to find a way around it. And we yes. have mercantilism where you can work yourself up, start with a cart, move on, and then you get a ship. But what if the ship you know, sinks, you need insurance, you need like some insurance that if the ship sinks, you're not completely screwed because there was probably a period of time where people got mm-hmm. completely screwed. Exactly. So yep. then you have banks yep. and so you have insurance out, firms. And, and yeah, yeah, increased commerce, ship sailing a yeah. lot, the amount of money that you need to insure a ship and all of that. And, and the idea of having early mercantilism and then early capitalism starts yeah. to come about. And then having a, the idea of having a grouping of people this this body this corpse that's why we call them corporations Corpus, yeah. or incorporated mm-hmm. um that have shares that divide yes yeah, incorporate that divide the, yeah. the risk as well as the reward mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, yet again it's distributing our cognitive network but doing it in a um fiscal and um physical material mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. so sharing risks and reward yeah. so this this all comes about because well this comes after now this new change that sweeps across human consciousness because now we're we're starting to think about God differently and his will differently as as a result of Augustine and Aquinas um, and then Eckhart and yeah so it gets it gets really confusing for people sacred is no longer a source of reason and rational mm-hmm. order we had the Black Death, the bubonic plague. A third of the population all over Europe dies. So we have death, war, pestilence, famine. You spoke of this apocalypse. All of this, the social order being disrupted, war, secret police, searching for heretics, the church 
is starts its first holy uh, inquisition. This whole experience is uh, analogous to the Hellenistic era and the darkness of that era, the hopelessness and the darkness, the meaninglessness. We have a labor shortage, and the dis this disrupted order means there's more freedom of geographic movements, mm -hmm. more social change. People start and more taking upward mobility as well, yeah, and particularly for the, apart. the so traders. So there's more opportunities, but yeah. things are falling apart. So people start taking things into their own hands, yeah. and they're able to because of the breakdown of social order. So they start being able to sell their labor and change status through their efforts. And this is yeah. where we now, for the first time in history, we start to, people start to have upward mobility according to their own merit. Well, uh, yeah, and capacity, and so we. And so this this is the backdrop for this battle of wills. Yeah, and through the you know we have mercantilism, mm -hmm. and now we have mm -hmm. banks, and we have um, you know insurances, which all require contracts, and particularly like incorporated peoples with shares. Yes, and so, the aristocracy is in the way of this upcoming. So class. well, what we need is a state. Yes, a state protects a the state. contract. A state is a grouping of individuals, or a representatory piece of a grouping of individuals that that yes. holds people to their contracts, if you will. Right. And right now, this is no opinions. This is just what happened in yes, human this history. Is, this is what this happened, is, yeah. This is how we got to this point that we're at. So ships, banks, finance, insurance, protect mm -hmm. investments. We're getting our friends together in corpus, incorporating to share risk mm -hmm. and profit. And now there's going to be more pressure on the state to enforce contracts and rules to protect this all of this activity well the creation the creation of happening. the state quite mm -hmm. literally because before it was yep. it was kingdoms and the closest thing we had would be a city yes. state but yes. now it's a and, state so, yeah because mm -hmm. now we needed norms to govern the behavior outside of the church and the yeah. aristocracy mm -hmm. so this secular alternative yeah. comes about and so now we have a new and, and, and it needs a new cycle or the all the trade actually is what needs the new cycle yeah, technology which, of algebra because the variables and the fact that you can go below zero, you can go into negative and all of that. So the zero yeah, and the Arabic from Hindu number system, Arabic number system yeah. replaces the Roman numeral. The idea system. of a negative, uh, a negative number system that particularly so we ties have a in with debt number system now. as well. Yeah. So you can go into debt for a certain period of time. That light just went out. Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So but, what were you just saying there, though? Um, well, the idea of having a negative, which we really didn't have much of before, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. allows you to go in debt for a period of time and then pay off that and then keep what's on top of it. So it allows you to participate even if you don't initially have the capital to yes. begin with. And then bringing negatives into your algebra allows for a mathematical upgrade. So this whole psych psychotechnology, the psychological technique, form, you know, formalized set of techniques that we call a technology the psychotechnology of i think it, you actually hit the button or something when that doesn't matter it's it's fine one moment becomes uh improved it will help allows us to improve our celestial navigation we are we apply our aristotelian logic to discover how the heavens move <laughs> what's up guys you've seen a little behind the scenes here yeah well my charging pack exploded and died so. and, and copernicus comes along and shows us how he basically discovers how chaotic the heavens actually are he says and he explains to everybody hey guys the math is actually better if you put the sun at the center instead of the earth 
and a whole new worldview is now in place. Well, at this point, he's not even a heretic because all we have left to determine what's real is math at this point. It's become such a powerful tool that I think the brightness is fine anyway. Well, I think it maybe hit hit the brightness up like one lumen or something. <laughs> yeah. We're at max, I believe. Uh, we're good. We're good then. Yeah, no worries, brother. But that is that light out of commission. I have another charging pack, but I can't find it. Ah, okay. Well, while you do that, I, I, I can continue going over notes. And I just realized... Our candles... Turn on the magical candles. Special effects. Oh wow, that light can stay out. It doesn't look too bad. Sorry, folks. Yeah, hey, we got a little bunch of going down though. Okay. Yeah, light's gonna stay out because I can't find another charging pack. Got to make right up now. for that light being out. You still look all right. Yeah, you know, just you're, you're bright enough. You're not totally dimmed out. So yeah, Copernicus, he's like, the math's better if you put the sun in the center, guys. Yeah, and you know, finding the the simpler way of understanding things by using math. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess this is the real big shift where we start using this universal language that seems to be quite applicable to, yet again, you know, conforming to the world better. Yeah. Our, our language in this sense of math, it, you know, it's... We can break down anything now. And uh, what for, happens for is we part, go from yeah. having conformity with the world, like feeling ourselves in a sense of oneness with the world, to having a barrier between us and the world. Now sensory experience, our sense, our own sense experience is now a veil between us and reality. And mm-hmm. so th- this gets really confusing for us. Galileo answers Occam on this, and he's like, math is the language of the universe. It's all, it's all okay. And... So, so yeah, so because all we have left at this point in history is to determine what's real as math. Now our sense experience is telling us that there's all this space between all these objects. We're, Earth is not the center of the universe like we thought. So there's putting great doubt into the divine the view of reality that we held before because we thought that Earth was being at the center was part of it. Part of the, you know, part of divine activity, but actually no. God didn't do that. He didn't do it that way. He didn't make Earth the center of the universe. There is no center. Yeah, and Galileo introduces this idea of you know, um, the, the the universe being random opposed to an ordered spirit. There you, you go. Know, it's like, oh well, you know, it's just easier if the math says it goes, you know, goes this way. That's that's one you know, one way and then realizing, oh, well, it's just arbitrary math and randomness that the universe runs off of. And it's like, man, you know, that makes you, you know, an island of reason, like a tiny flea on a flea fleeing through space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, yeah, our use of geometry is now just to represent abstract relations. And, And making the shift to representing abstract relations was hugely helpful for us. But, now math is being used in this purely abstract causal way and Galileo essentially kills the universe that the idea of a living universe at least the idea of everything having its own inherent motion and inherent movement and will to it 
that's no longer the case. Everything's actually inert. Things don't move because of some inner drive. And so before everything was alive and we were involved in this alive universe, this living universe, this co-creation with God, now everything, nothing's moving on purpose at all. You know, before everything had a purpose, now nothing has a purpose. And that comes along with a strange, incomprehensible, absurd, purposeless, meaningless universe. You know, it's, it changes everything for, for the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view reality. L the universe is now inert and lifeless and capable of self-moving. It's just cause and effect. And now matter resists our will. Everything is defined in terms of will and resistance to. So life becomes a battle of so many individual wills in a purposeless universe. So Galileo also here inadvertently has removed the basis for evil. And we're putting all this on Galileo. This is all science and math building up to this gentleman that was able to take it a little bit further. But this is how it happens. Uh, previously, evil was seen as a whole in being as pure chaos. Now it's you know, space is just empty and inert now. It's, and evil is just uh, some idea about something that's really immoral. It's just like an adjective now. It's not an actual real thing. So the legacy from the axial scientific revolution was a way to overcome our disillusion, to, uh, to use our understanding of the world to understand ourselves. Now we've transferred that energy to scientism into the object it things have got to be objective the, the i've got to be able to measure everything like all the proof of what you're saying about this object has to be measurable in the object well, so it, it has to be objective and if it can't be made to be objective if it can't be measured if it's not tangible in that way then it has no worth yeah and that's cut you know that's that's right that's yeah. the death of the the wonderment that you feel of having mm -hmm. an interconnected mm -hmm. live yeah because meaning universe. is no longer in the world and the universe and everything around us it's now it must just only be in our minds and so beauty is internal our sense of beauty is subjective all of things that we see as me meaningful are subjective and uh, the old order is breaking down and that and unfortunately the aristotelian world breaks down along with it that understanding of reality that was an interconnected communion between science and spiritualism is now falling apart yeah yeah religion will not be untouched by this yes mathmat mathematizing this objectifying this Mm -hmm. It's a battle of wills yeah. mentality and, you know, even a certain indifference to the wonder of a living universe, which I have a note here. Yeah, and a purposeless universe that has this battle of purposes, this battle of wills going on inside of it. We're like these little islands of meaning and willpower, which is a really strange thing to think of occurring in w a limitless universe that's filled with all of this inert material without reason. So, God, the idea of God has stood up to this in a lot of people's minds. It's like, well, this is just how God made it. Then, obviously, it wasn't the way we thought two thousand years ago. He, and this makes sense. This is a compliment to God. He's a very sophisticated guy. Of course, there would be evolution. 
you know it's not like we just he planted fossils to fool us or anything like that or like there we didn't evolve from apes of course we did but that was part of god's plan too so we could so we find ways but the experiential reality of living in a divine universe imbued with consciousness in in the heart of or the mind of god you could say the the access to that has kind of been swept up behind us now and that's that's a damn shame we're fortunately we're finding our footprints though and thank god we have the internet now and so as our access to all of these ancient wisdom traditions becomes increasingly available and widespread we're starting to realize oh okay we we left some wheat along there with the chaff back there yeah and, to you know we're we're logical thinking beings so we're able to even even if you know say the people in the past didn't even have sim like too similar of thinking behavior that we do we can still rationalize ourselves into their shoes if you will mm -hmm. to try to understand these lessons from the past and then yeah. ration rationalize ourselves back into yeah we have better hindsight than any humans have ever had in history yeah, right yeah. to to be able to do that too to look back and, and rationally understand like where we came from and how we got here sure because like you know before there was like mass literature and people going and digging up things and researching mm -hmm. things and learning dead languages it was just whatever stories you were told folk, yeah, folk whatever tales scrolls or, or books you, know, you could get a hold of or voices you the, heard for most people not even literate enough to have that many yeah, maybe right. literate enough everything was just to read like mouth, a pay yeah. tab and like an order sheet or something like that but not enough you know to even care even about having a literacy book, was like that you know yeah, you're right so like yeah. you know now it's you know literacy rates are dropping and don't mm -hmm. get me started on that but we are still an insanely hyper literate worldwide mm -hmm. organism yeah um, yeah we are now for sure because even like the places with the lowest amount of literacy it's not hard to introduce high levels of in uh, literacy you can do it within mm -hmm. a generation now mm -hmm. at this point you know just well yeah you yeah know. you can you can no longer does it take generations of people to become literate you can do it within a generation just simply so by giving them now. a cell yeah. phone or yeah. having you know, yeah we don't even have to send all the books now we just need to make sure there's some computers access and cell phones. to the in inter internet of everything information is now accessible yeah. yeah so moving on up uh through this quick um what what, what do you call it review of our last episode yeah. uh we got ourselves to the point of the reconfiguration of christianity how this affected religion and spirituality we see that secularization is picking up steam and the protestant reformation the protesters against capitalism comes about um and the dissolution of the nomological, normative, and narrative orders, ways of seeing the world are all gone. You can really see the transfer has happened now. And do you remember the term for nomological, normative, versus norm like narrative? A, a term that puts them all together as one thing? Oh, No, uh, no, but the difference between the three of them? Normative is the normal order that we're in. The nomological, is, uh, I don't have the notes in here. I'm trying um, to remember how he described nomological. Narrative is the story, of course, yeah. that we tell about it. The nomological, I believe, is the upward ascent story. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah, so, yeah the, It's the story of self-transcendence yeah. that is possible for human beings and that human beings can rise 
into uh, co-creation with God, with Source, very Neoplatonic way of looking at the world. So that's gone. The normative worldview that pre that we had throughout all of human history is gone, and now the narrative worldview is also gone, and we have gone through the death of the universe that we experienced in Galileo's time. So now we are on to episode 21. We're going to get into Martin Luther and Descartes. And I hope you guys are ready. This is another really powerful episode. So it's not pronounced Descartes. Or Descartes. No, 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 yeah. Descartes. Yeah. <laughs> Descartes. <laughs> the way I read things, though, it's like Descartes. Ooh. Descartes. Mm. Sounds yeah. like something you can eat. It sounds kind of tasty. Mm. It does. It sounds like it would uh, be Paired well with the tiramisu. You know, you could you could open up a, a um it's like like a drink a philosophy a, a philosophy um themed like uh like tea shop. Hmm. Wouldn't that be called cool? Descartes, but like <laughs> spelled Descartes but T's at the uh, end. So people go, Oh, Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to <laughs> That would be so what a dumb and goofy name. I love it. That that would get a chuckle out that's of highbrow, everyone. That, that's highbrow, lowbrow humor. It's funny you for know? yeah, it's funny for the highbrow people that understand how you're supposed to actually. And it's lowbrow because I I it's don't read too good. Break them up the highbrow. <laughs> It'll be healthy. You'll have a good chuckle. All right, fam, we're gonna jump into it now. This is episode twenty-one of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis: Martin Luther and Descartes. <laughs> Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we took a look at the advent of the scientific revolution and we looked at the work of Copernicus and how the important advent of a scientific description of reality had with it the consequence that most of our experience, our sensory experience, was uh, questionable as illusory in nature. Galileo also uh, developed that idea of the math as the language of reality and uh, use that with the new experimental method, a method also born out of the idea that most of our cognition is uh, deceptive and biasing in nature, and he used that to discover inertial motion and, that, and change the notion of matter into something that exists and resists our will, um, but that had the effect of killing the universe and making it purposeless in nature. And thus we become odd islands of meaning and purpose in a vast ocean of meaningless, purposeless, material motion. So, all of that, of course, is going to have an impact on people's self-understanding, their, their, the meaning that they're using to make sense of their existence. And look what's happening here. That Aristotelian idea that the structure of your experience and the structure of reality uh, conform has been radically undermined and now you are trapped within your own mind behind veils of illusion disconnected from the world and God has become progressively more and more a matter of will there's an individual that takes all of this up and he does more than just think about this or speak about it or write about it. He's one of those really titanic individuals who exemplifies the chaos 
and the anxiety of his time. This is Martin Luther. He's definitely deeply influenced. He's German. He's deeply influenced by the Rhineland mystics. He's influenced by that growing tradition of the self as radically self-negating, inner conflict being at the core of spirituality. He's an Augustinian monk. He's deeply influenced by Augustine's ideas of self-depravity and our, our inability to achieve mystical union with God unaided. And through Augustine, Luther, of course, is deeply immersed in and impressed with Paul's ideas about our inner conflict and how that parallels a conflict within God between God's love towards us and God's justice-driven anger and wrath towards us. And Martin Luther is very terrified of that wrath. He's very terrified of it. And he has taken that notion through Tauler of mystical self-negation, and it has become radicalized because of the influence of Augustine and Paul and his own inner conflict, so that the self-negation in Luther's psyche has become self-loathing. He experiences the self as radically folded into itself, obsessed with itself in a completely immorally self-centered fashion. So the self is this radical, self-feeding, self-negating, because as the self is enfolded and obsessed with itself, it is simultaneously being cut off from God and cut off from reality. So it is very much a self-destructive process. And I really want you to hear that self-destructive process that he sees as the essence of the self. So this is Luther's interpretation of the biblical notion of pride and rebellion against God, that we are intrinsically self-obsessed in this self-aggrandizing, self-destructive fashion. So try to, try to think of moments in your life that will give some substance to what Luther is saying. Right. You have discovered a pattern of behavior, self-destructive. For example, perhaps you keep dating the same kind of person and you keep going back to this and it keeps turning out to be wrong for you, and perhaps also wrong for the other person. So you step back and you've talked to friends and you reflect it and you make a deliberate conscious effort. Uh, no, no, I'm not going to date this, per this kind of person anymore. I'm not going to date that type of person. I'm going to date this type of person. And that will change things. I'll break this pattern. And you go in and you find somebody. They seem to be totally different. And you start dating them. And then lo and behold, against your will, even though it seems to be something that you willfully brought about, you find yourself caught in the same destructive pattern again. And of course, Freud and Jung and the whole psychodynamic tradition, very much part of the legacy of Luther, by the way, are going to make much of that fact that we keep repeating, even in our conscious efforts to change our behavior, we keep repeating these self-destructive patterns. So, although... I'm critical of Luther. There's a deep truth here in Luther, right? 
There is the touching of the, the way in which our unconscious processes, our unconscious cognition can be beset with these, we've talked about it, these parasitic processes that have a life of their own and can consume us. So Luther is convinced that he cannot do anything to save himself. He takes Augustine's notion, right, that the Neoplatonic mystical ascent is insufficient on its own and has to be supplemented with, you know, the love of God through Christ. He takes that and he radicalizes it in a very powerful way. Because of his own personal wretchedness, he comes to the conclusion that there is nothing he can do. And that leads him to a startling interpretation of Paul, an interpretation that is going to put him at odds with the Catholic Church. And this is the interpretation that we are saved by faith alone, where faith becomes nothing more than a complete acceptance of God's uh, saving grace. So let's unpack this very carefully because it's become so enmeshed in our way of thinking and being. The idea here is that faith has, is, right, it, 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 notice what's happened, all that sense of par, participatory knowing, the sense that we're participating in a process. Remember the Israelite notion that we're participating in our cultural history, we're participating in the creativity of God. All of that is now gone. It's gone. And your sense of what it's like to be you, your sense of self, is completely twisted and illusory. So all the perspectival knowing, all the participatory knowing is being eradicated. It's being reduced down to the acceptance of a proposition. And an acceptance that is, cannot in any way be based on evidence or argument, because that would be your mind participating in your salvation. It has to be a radical, pure acceptance. So the, the self-negation of the Rhineland mystics has come to fruition in Luther's ideas here. Now what does that mean? That means that you have to, what you radically, radically have to accept is there's absolutely nothing you can do. And even your affirmation of the proposition of the creeds of Christianity is something that has to be given to you. Now, what does that mean from God's side of this equation? It means that God's act of saving you is completely arbitrary. There is not, since there is nothing you do, there's no thought, word, or deed that you perform that in any way earns or has any causal effect upon God's behavior. And, you, and I, I'm not over-representing this. Look at the debate between Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus tried to propose what he called synergy, that the human being and God were working together in a participatory fashion for salvation, with God, of course, having the bulk of the work. And Luther rejects that utterly. God's saving of an individual is completely arbitrary. So God has become, right, remember what we talked about in Occam, right, that 
God's will supersedes his reason. God's reason is now not involved at all. It is just an arbitrary act of will that saves us. And we have to radically accept that arbitrariness. Now think about what that means. And, and there's a weird... There's an irony here. There's an irony here. And it, it's, it's almost a self-referential irony. Because Luther is trying... And I, and I think he's, he's very sincere, but he's trying to rescue us from, right, the fact that we are obsessed with ourselves in an idolatrous fashion and that we, that, that obsession is one, a source of deep suffering for, for, for us. We know that that self-obsession cuts us off, separates us. The irony is, in his endeavors to deal with that, look at what Luther is teaching. What, 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 is, what, is he, what is he putting into our cultural grammar? That we are inherently worthless and that our inner life is one of self-loathing. And the only solution to that is arbitrarial, arbitrary, unearned regard. This is the cultural training for narcissism. Narcissism is to be trapped, to be self-obsessed, within self-loathing, and that what you want to alleviate is unearned positive regard. Not for any reason, not for anything you've done, completely amoral, unearned positive regard. That's narcissism. So the, one of the deep ironies of Luther's revolution is that, and I think this says something about um, what's going on at the time, one of the deep ironies is he actually lays the grammar for cultural narcissism. We are all being trained to experience ourselves as wretched, self-obsessed, and that the only solution is unearned positive regard. Great time, fam. This is a good time. So, Martin Luther King. Um, yeah, not, not he's that a, guy. He, he, Prior to Martin Luther King. Oh, no, excuse me. Yes, Martin Just Luther. Martin Luther. Sorry, my bad. I was thinking yeah, about Martin him Luther earlier King's today. On point. But this guy, Martin Luther, he was also on point in some respects. I mean... He, he definitely helped bring well, about an interesting revolution, well, but he there was, was an irony he, to, to he, what he achieved. He was of the school of the self-is-self-negating mindset. Yeah, and there's a mystical, beautiful side to the realization of Augustine. And he was an Augustine monk, an Augustinian monk, I guess you would say, but he was also one who had studied the Rhineland mystics. This is a German gentleman we're talking about, and the Rhineland mystics from Germany. Um, so he, he really picked up on ideas on the ideas of Paul's or Paul's ideas of uh, God's conflict, uh, the love of God and the wrath and the vengeance of God. You know, Paul saw the conflict within himself, and then he basically projected a conflict into God's mind because he couldn't solve the conundrum. And 
Yeah, well, this this projection of Martin Luther was yeah. one of you know the self negation is self loathing, which cuts yes, one off from the God and His reality. Yeah, um, this, this in, mystical self negation gets radicalized into self loathing, self obsessed, um, kind of narcissism. A self destructive process will be become prideful, you know, because he recognized the self destructive process. He recognized that we can become prideful, and he was trying to come up with a way to solve this. Um, yeah, but I guess it was in a way that, well, like like you said, is ironic because yeah. there's there's nothing, you know, he felt there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Right. So the recognition, you know. our inner consciousness can, can go awry. He saw that, but there's nothing you can do and what, taking it that far. And what, and what, what, a, what a fatalistic way of looking at yeah. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, faith now is, is nothing but complete acceptance and yeah. a statement of, of a belief. It's no longer about faithfulness to a higher ideal. Well, don't you know, if you just accept Jesus into your heart, you will be saved. That's where we started getting these ideas. Um, that, and then we started putting Christianity that way. Christianity wasn't like this prior to... Well, and it's no longer particip- to this, to participating time. in the way, but just accepting... Just accept it. Uh, and, yeah. Well, just accept God's arbitrary grace unto you. Yeah, Which arbitrary. It's arbitrary. Because you're, you're, you're you know, re- a wretched, self-loathing yeah, being. You're worthless. You know, you're, you're not worthless. worth anything. There's nothing so. that you can do to earn God's love or earn his grace. You can, you can only accept it. So his proposal was a complete radical self negation in, in the most extreme sense. So his proposal was, except there is nothing you can do. You can only be given things. So God's saving you is only arbitrary. So God has become this non reasonable, arbitrary thing now. You know, like there, there is no reason for it, you know, and thus removing, I, I would say, a huge portion of the the love component of yeah. one's relationship with God. Yeah, he even de- denies the certain uh, synergy argument of humans and God working together in in synergy, basically. He, he totally denies that idea of a participatory relation with God that the Israelites celebrated. Yeah, and maybe we're not at, at this point in time, not here yet, but this whole idea of, you know, um, you know, you have to just be given this, given this arbitrary acceptance and grace that you don't deserve because you're worthless. So how would you deserve it? And yeah. hit it yeah. on the head, cultural narcissism. Now it's to the point now where it's like, well, how often do you hear? Well, from one group or another, d- doesn't matter. Well, we deserve this. We deserve this. Young people. Oh, I deserve this. You mm-hmm. know, like, isn't that the argument of all the older folk that deal with, you know, young folk that didn't have to deal with the hardships that the older folk dealt with. Well, these kids are ungrateful for what they have. They think they just, you know, deserve their iPhones and, you know, yeah. des- deserve this and deserve this and deserve this. And, you know, hit it on the head. It's cultural narcissism. Yeah. God's reason is no longer involved with reality at all. God's just got pure will. He doesn't even use reason anymore in this conception of God. And we just must accept this. He's, and so, you know, you know, Martin Luther is trying to rescue us from the self-obsession that he sees starting to promulgate throughout society. Um, but what Martin Luther resists persists. He made it stronger. He helped, he and the, those around him that started taking well, on this belief, helped make this whole thing that they were trying to stop stronger. So that, that's the deep irony of his it, attempt. I think it's a case of also it's like, well, I think this way and I'm a pretty smart guy. So everybody much must think this way. Yeah. Whereas like most of the people who probably got wrapped up into these, you know, ideas 
didn't necessarily see themselves as wretched or anything, but they just dealt with a really wretched time in the I mean, world. He was definitely si- he, seeing himself as wretched. Well, yeah. you know, you do have to have a, a, a certain... Because that's what he thought that you had to do to self-negate all the ways to like think of yourself as worthless. But again, this is the mistake Buddha made when he is trying to achieve enlightenment through asceticism. He was trying to achieve liberation from the self by trying to deny the self and of course trying to deny the self is just admitting the self exists and it makes it stronger but if the self is illusory you got to find some kind of middle path because if you're trying to resist this thing that is our is illusory you're just making it more and more real you know this idea of denial to the extreme doesn't work and martin luther ends up making the same mistake well and also too and like that's, that's basically this has happened over and over again through history the very ass- few people see around this one and they try and tell us and then we you know we do what we do the assumption that everybody thinks the way I do, particularly if you're somebody mm. like Martin Luther uh, Martin Luther, or any other thinker, in order to think these thoughts about yourself and realize how wretched you are and your problems, you have to live a pretty comfortable life comparatively. So most people who were not living a comfortable mm. life didn't even have time to think of themselves no. this way. No. And so then they're offered this solution. You're very grateful Just for accept them. that you're worms and you're yeah. dirt, and we can initiate initiate you into this thing that'll give you god's grace Mm -hmm. and you know you know forgive me for sounding offended and i'm not offended but like i understand where this mode of thinking is and like having you know you know you know the greatest thinkers all these people well they were comfortable enough they you know to do that most people don't have the time or the comfort to really delve deep into sure their own issues and if we have a good wise person that has good wise traditions and you know isn't so nihilistic then you get beautiful things to come out from it but mm-hmm. you know this is a you know, you know Mar- martin luther i won't say he's completely nihilistic but this is a very very nihilistic way of looking at things you know like i'm you know, hey i'm dirt people i understand i'm well, i am is, of the dirt but i am not i am not dirt i am yeah, not nothing he, he, I'm not he's worthless. just trying to do what he thinks an augustinian monk should do and he's trying to progress the process basically and he's trying to build upon the rhineland mysticism of that he grew from or grew his understanding from he is trying to rescue people around him you know he's trying and he does some amazing things um he has some profound ideas but it's once this is ultimately taken to its conclusion, he didn't see where it would go. And he just didn't have the foresight for for what was going to happen. Wow. Um, and this was inevit- kind of an inevitable ball rolling down the hill process that we were already well, and, in. And it's understandable, you know, too, because, like, you know, literally the, apoc- the apocalypse pretty much just yeah. did happen. No, so they're living was, in a very dark age. Yeah, yeah and, yeah. you know, you can't you can't trust the pre-existing church because, well, they've got their hired goons that if you're a heretic, they're going to wrap you up and disappear you, and you grow, you grow up that with the stories was of that. Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah, the church was start, had developed yeah. a secret police, the first secret police, mm-hmm. and they were arresting heretics at this time. So this the social disorder that had occurred had caused the church had caused the church to become more authoritarian, um, and so he's he's kind of rebelling against that too. Yeah, yeah. So there's but it's 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 sad though because this you know this this is this is literally the self robbing of agency, beca- beca- making oneself hopeless and helpless. Mm-hmm. 
you know um which yeah it's no longer like a self-improvement process like re- no, religion and wisdom there's no room or, for ascension you just yeah. have to open yourself up and wait for it to drop into your cup you know that's yeah oh that actually explains why in the like new you know mega churches and the modern you know modern christian with all the rock band stuff they all go like this and there, there is a truth there that it's hard to understand <laughs> how to cultivate oneself such that you can be more open to god's grace or to experiencing enlightenment enlightenment and i would say it's actually uh, it would be reasonable to realize that like your potential for wretchedness mm -hmm. but that that exists within the world of potential which at this point in time has been gutted it's not about potential it's you know just about arbitrary the idea that we need to ask for god's help for strength and and resisting temptation things like that that that's all i get that 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 makes sense and asking and reminding yourself of a higher transcendent ideal and asking for its aid, you know, the creator of the universe's aid in your being's perfection and, and this and that. I think that that's, that's beautiful. But yeah, taking it into this direction to where God has no reason and we're no longer co-creating with him, that we, we have totally lost all self-will and everything. It's a very cold, materialistic way of looking at religion even. It's like religion is changing to accommodate now the secularization of the world. Yeah. and Or the scientism, you could even say materialistic way of looking at reality yeah and almost to a certain extent i I would i would have to say the or it's at least losing its juice in the competition against it and the fact that it's competing at all is probably part of the reason and it's it's probably easier to just radically accept just okay just give you know give me whatever you're going to give me please just you know give it to me then to be like oh i've actually got to do if I want anything to change spiritually, physically, or anything for me, that's on me. Because then another set of problems would be like, well, the thought that, you know, whatever bad happens to you is because you did something bad. But yeah, holding yeah. the balance between the two is like, no, like sometimes bad things happen, but I do yeah. ultimately have the decisions over how I interact how I re- with the world reply, and how I interact react, with God. Respond. Yeah, that's it. You know? Yeah, and um, that middle ground is, yeah. is, the, is the place that we find ourselves naturally trying to come to now. Mm-hmm. We just don't have any shared um, transcendent moral way of being to agree upon, to rally our, ourselves around, to put ourselves into large, you know, into modes of agreeance. Our civilization is in a very destabilized place because we're not agreeing on mm-hmm. the substratum. Like what what is reality made of what are morals you know is there, are are there even any transcendent morals at all to reality because if there aren't if there isn't a god then you know anything goes or our for survival's sake really so there's no no rule so how do you come up with compelling reasons yeah. how do you how do you live in a world like this where we've destroyed the idea of god yeah. and this isn't saying that god isn't real either you know i personally believe that god is real but it's understandable that we've come to this place to where people now doubt God because the way God has been presented over the last or even you know five hundred maybe so not years. even doubt but are just indifferent to it at this point mm-hmm. you know and indifference is mm-hmm. in a lot of cases worse than malice you know it's just like okay well you know you ask pretty much any average person oh it's not even important any to average think about. person That's that worse went than to malice, church yeah. once or twice in their life mm-hmm. ask them you know do you believe in that God and they'll be like well yeah I believe in God and it's like well do you have a relationship with God. Mm. Probably not, but they <laughs> yeah, believe yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just indifferent. God's just that thing that's that's up there, and you know, 
I hope there's not a hell because, uh, you know, like I'll get sent yeah. to it. What is your relationship with God is a challenging question, even for someone that's been religious for many or, years or, or all their life. Do you, do you have a relationship? Just, you know, yeah, cause, like you have to think yeah. about that because a relationship takes two to tango. It does. You know, it's, it's yeah. not just one, one thing having a relationship with itself. It's you recognize you the reality participate you of this thing that you are trying to live up to and live in accordance with and live in co-creation mm -hmm. yeah yeah so yeah, yeah so in, inadvertently martin luther helped lay the grammar for our current cultural narcissism and now verbeke is going to break down how that came about so i'm just going to pull him back um just a wee little bit here real fast and that the only solution is unearned positive regard. And so we can see, <laughs> we can see the spirit of Luther in our obsession with Instagram, in our obsession with Snapchat. We constantly want unearned positive regard. Now, there are other consequences of this radical change. Of course, immediate consequences, Luther comes into conflict. He protests against the Roman Catholic Church. That's what Protestant comes from. Because the Catholic Church has a different doctrine of salvation, right? That it's one in which the human being has, still has a participatory role. And because of that, the church also thinks that it's cultural history. Think of how this is still an Israelite notion. The church still thinks that its tradition matters for human salvation. That participating in that tradition, the tradition, the cultural history of the church, is also something is, that is needed. Now, I'm not advocating for Catholicism here over Protestantism. I'm trying to get you to understand what the two sides were standing for. So Luther is attacking all of that. He's attacking the authority of the church. He's attacking the authority of tradition. So history and tradition and institution don't matter. Why? Because Luther is a child of his time. He is trapped inside his own mind. He advocates that all that really matters in matters of faith are what individual conscience. And please remember what this word means. It means knowing yourself. Science, con science, conscience, knowing yourself. The one thing you know is yourself. And so Luther refuses to recant. He refuses to change his interpretation to be in line with the church. And he valorizes individual conscience as the final authority over a person's spiritual life. This lays the foundation. So do you see what's happened here? This withdrawal of meaning into the individual mind, isolated individual mind, is now being appropriated as, well, that must mean that the mind, the individual conscience, is the final sole authority of what matters. It's a radical idea. 
Many other cultures find this a bizarre idea that we possess in the West. And so, of course, there's a lot of discussion nowadays about individual responsibility, individual authority. We have, as Adorno talked about it, we have a cult of authenticity. That being true to yourself, and this is Lutheran, being true to yourself is the ultimate authority by which you should judge and evaluate your life. Now notice what has happened. The connection to reality, being true to reality, has been superseded by being true to yourself. And it, that is also emerging with a, a cultural grammar that is training us in narcissism. Now because of this, Luther, Luther was a monk, and yet he comes to the conclusion that the monasteries should be shut down. Why would he, why would he come to that conclusion? Well, right, the West, for a long time, had these paired institutions. We had a knowledge institution that has already emerged and is being developed, right, in the Middle Ages, and this, of course, is the university. We're supposed to get a universal education, come to understand, right, as much of reality, the universe, as you can. And that was paired to a place where, right, you have to go through transformation in order to acquire wisdom, and this is the monastery. And so this is the idea here, right, that here you're seeking that self-transcendence. This is, this is, right, this is the legacy of the Axial Revolution. This, of course, is a response to the emergence of first Aristotelian science and then the new science of people like Bacon, right, Copernicus, Galileo. And the two are supposed to represent an important synthesis of how human beings are to make sense of themselves and to find a meaningful life. But this institution places a huge premium on self-transcendence, as we've seen. And for Luther, this is the grand illusion. The idea that human beings are capable of self-transcendence is something he thinks is the greatest lie that our self tells us. He sees that as the greatest instance of the sin of pride. See, as if you lose the perspectival, participatory sense of faith, if faith just becomes assertion born out of radical acceptance, then the idea of this being even possible to you disappears. And so what happens is that these institutions are being shut down. Now that means the university now needs something else. In order to take this knowledge and give it existential transformative relevance to individual lives, the university has to be attached to something else that transforms people's 
lives, give structure and purpose to their existence. And of course, we know what that's going to be. That's going to be the state. And knowledge is not going to be linked so much to wisdom, it's going to be linked to politics. And of course, that is going to be supported by the new science. People like Bacon famously arguing that knowledge is power, the forerunner of the work of Michel Foucault and others. So we get the loss of all the psychotechnologies of wisdom, of cultural communities that are committed to providing guidance and support to people who want to cultivate wisdom, of a historical tradition that can relay to us this, the patterns of success and failures and give us practices that we can use to test out and try for transformation. All of that is being lost. So you know where to go for information, you know where to go for knowledge, but now today you do not know where to go for wisdom. We have sapiential obsolescence of our knowledge. And we have knowledge being inextricably bound to the machinery of the state and to politics, such that it is becoming increasingly difficult right now for us as a culture to distinguish politics from knowledge from the willful assertion of things that we must simply accept because of an arbitrary will wielding power. So, the Protestant Reformation is titanic. It is really inappropriate if you're trying to understand the advent of the meaning crisis, to only look at the scientific revolution. You must look at the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation together. They are conjoined. Now, there are other important aspects of the Protestant Reformation that come to the fore. Because of his attack on tradition and institution, Luther advocates what he calls the priesthood of all believers. There is nothing in between. There is no mediator between you and God. There is no church. There's no priest. Right? There's nothing here. There is just a direct personal relationship. Again, this idea of your own personal spirituality has its root here. Now because of this, Luther argues that for the priesthood of all believers, everybody has an equal spiritual authority. Because of course, learning, processes of growth and self-transformation, those are no longer important criteria. All that matters is the degree to which God has saved someone. Now we've talked about some of the negative consequences of that, but a positive consequence for that is that Luther argues for a complete form of democracy within the church. Everything should be decided democratically because there 
should not be any significant authority or hierarchical structure because Luther is rejecting all of that. This, of course, is why the Catholic Church is so like resisting to him, like why they are so inimical to him. They just want this idea eradicated because it, 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 it undermines the very structure and existence of the institution of, of the Catholic Church. Now, Luther doesn't propose political democracy. He only proposes democracy within the church. But nevertheless, that is going to give people in their day-to-day -day lives experience with democratic processes, democratic decision-making. In fact, in the areas that they consider most important about their lives, they're going to be acting democratically. Now, Luther thinks that there shouldn't be democracy in the world outside of the church. And when the peasants revolt in Germany because they're being influenced by this idea of the importance of the individual, individual conscience and authority, Luther does not side with the peasants. He sides with the princes. He sides with established authority. He has a two-worlds doctrine. There's a doctrine within the church, and that's a world that is... Remember how God is divided, right? That's the world of God's love, and that's where we act democratically. But outside the church, we don't know who's saved and who's not saved. We'll come back to that point. And because of that, that's the world under God's wrath. Then that's a world that has to be kept in check by political authority wielding the sword of power. Again, that's a, that, that's a dark aspect of Luther. But it also brings with it the beginning of an idea of the separation of church and state. A radical new idea. Now Luther, of course, is proposing it because he's proposing it that within the church, under God's love, people should be treated one way, and outside of the church which is under God's wrath, there should be a different way in which people are treated and politically operate, and, they, and the state should not interfere with the church. So the, we get the beginnings of separation of church and state, which we take for granted, but this is going to further drive the secularization of the culture. It's going to further drive the secularization of the culture, because more and more people are experiencing the sacred as something private, separate, secluded unto itself, separate from the state and politics, and of course also science and the university. Right? Now, that not knowing who's saved, of course, also brings with it terrific problems. This was made into a classic argument, which has come under some criticism, but I think the core insight is still of value by Max Weber. The problem with Luther's model, right, is you, you, there's nothing you can do to know that you're saved. Because there is nothing you can do to bring... You have no causal role which means there's no causal evidence. There's no evidence. How do you know if you're saved? Because God chooses people arbitrarily. So this provokes terrific anxiety. 
Right? There's tremendous anxiety about whether or not you're saved. You, know, you have your own... Indi- See, and Luther gives you... There's this dramatic tension in Luther. He gives you this, this, uh, this double, bl- double bind. Right? He tells you that what you ultimately have to rely on is your individual conscience, but he tells you that that inner world is one of overwhelming self-deception. And so what do you do with this anxiety? Well, you can't do anything officially, but what you can do is you can work hard to make your life good. Because if you're succeeding in the world, especially socioeconomic success, that surely is a sign that God has chosen you, that God loves you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop what becomes you know, called the present work ethic. Because my, right, my only way of knowing is this unofficial way, this relatively unconscious way of knowing that I'm saved, is if I'm succeeding well. So I'm going to work hard to succeed. And I'm not going to use my wealth in any way to promote myself. Right? I'm not going to do any what would later be called conspicuous consumption because that would be a sign of pride. So I work hard, and in order to avoid pride, I'm going to, pl- I'm going to push that, the, the, the money, the wealth I acquire, back into my business. I'm going to get the Protestant work ethic, and, the, uh, and, the, and this is going to align so well with the emerging corporations that we talked about, the emerging, the emerging ascendancy of the commercial class, and we get the advent of capitalism. As Weber's book famously puts it, the Protestant work ethic, and the spirit of capitalism. And you see, and, and this worry, this worry is a real worry. And look, this is, the, like, what you watch happen. And, and this, and, and what's amazing is how Luther was surprised by this. Right? For, for a man who is in many ways brilliant, he, he translates the Bible into, Ger- into German, by the way. He makes the Bible readable for everybody because of the priesthood of all believers. And he's a brilliant translator. Many people consider him as one of the foundational figures of modern German. But what he doesn't, he honestly, he honestly thought that everybody would read the Bible the same way he did. So he thought we'd gotten rid of the Pope, but there would be, right, there would be a unifying thing that would hold Christianity together which is the idea of the Bible. So the Bible becomes very holy. And many people have said that what Protestants have is a paper pope. The Bible takes the role for them that the pope does for the Catholic world. And of course, we are facing struggles right now in our culture uh, because we don't quite know what to do with this terrible and awesome book, the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The Bible becomes what holds the sinner. It's like a paper pope. It's what has the ultimate authority now. Yeah. Whoa. Okay, so where did we kick off? Okay. Uh, Luther is a uh, oh, yeah. protesting the Catholic Church. Um, yeah. Attributes the authority of, uh, or um, excuse me, attacks the authority of traditionalism. Yes. Um, and yeah, he happens to be trapped within his own mind. And Very much. develops this idea of individual conscious, 
consciousness, the knowing of oneself, and valorized it. Yeah, and yeah. made our own consciousness the final authority over our lives and you know your personal relationship with god gives you just as much authority as other people any other person's authority over you know the nature of relationship with god but it's 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 putting oneself above reality essentially yeah 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 so so luther i like where where verveke left us um or where when we pick back up and how he said we can see the spirit of luther in the social media today um yeah so mm -hmm. luther's protesting the roman catholic church which still believes that people do have a participatory relationship yeah. with god so it's that history tradition history and tradition that he's rebelling mm -hmm. against um and he is very much trapped in his own mind all that matters is individual conscience and I love that Verveke points out we get conscience from the combination of con and science. So with science, looking in rationally to one's own uh, self-experience, all that matters is one's own self-experience. Luther refuses to repent this concept he, and change the definition. He valorizes the personal conscience as the prime determinating factor of morality the individual now yeah. is, is becomes this, this cult of authenticity yes yes the be so the be true to, to yourself then you know i don't know i won't say i have a personal grudge against that but i've seen too many times there's be true to yourself and then i don't know you get hooked on drugs you become a horrible alcoholic uh you end up doing self-destructive debaucherous behaviors yeah, not that expensive reality should one be true but to i'm being self. true to yeah. myself you end up becoming yeah. this terrible piece of crap being human true being to this whole reality that we have a, a relationship with that actually has built-in transcendent ideals and goodness and love above being the reality true to this inbuilt this universe that it is built with inbuilt love it is now a, it's no longer that it's actually not being true to reality anymore that's superseded by being true to yourself alone and this this is what is magnifying the narcissism here because it's so focused only on this one yeah. side the church you know in this time had knowledge institutions uh, coming about um and these knowledge institutions were called universities yeah. universities because they were places for universal education and education and everything that we understood about the universe so far and they paired this that universal education with a practice a wisdom practice of self-transcendence in the monastery that's the legacy of the axial revolution this was the response to you know he disturbed a powerful response to that bacon so and galileo he, he thought that self-transcendence was some you know the grand delusion you can't self-transcend no we're all despicable horrible awful things yeah wretched yeah, we're worth nothing he that's definitely what he believed. so get, get rid of get rid of the monasteries because it's pointless yeah and so that's a shame because we had started to come up with the way of synthesizing how to live a meaningful life it wasn't perfect mm -hmm. but we did have universities for universal education paired with self you know mutually supporting and supported by a practice of self-transcendence, a wisdom practice, uh, a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And the unlinking of those two things is how we got ourselves into this current 
mess. It well, feels like. now we just have statism in politics and go mm-hmm. to a place to know things, and then you will become powerful, and you'll have everything together. Oh, and people confuse politics with knowledge and truth. Yeah. Yeah. Like claims of statements, like politics. We, we all know that they're liars. That's why we have sayings like all politicians are liars or politicians are snakes and this and that. So Luther, yeah, he believed the idea of self-transcendence was the greatest lie. And in his popularization of this idea and the, and the protest against the process of self-transcendence is unfortunately what killed the wisdom traditions. Now, from this, we got some other great ideas, though. So this is, you know, this is just the gray way that things turn out. Like, there's goods and bads to this story. Um, now the university is no longer attached to spiritual and inbuilt loving universe, a uh, universe that's charged with love by a creative entity, it's the university is now attached to the state as the power source. Knowledge is not linked to wisdom anymore, but to politics. We have Francis Bacon saying, you know, the famous quote, knowledge is power. And knowledge is indeed powerful. So humans started to really get drunk on this power. The institutions that aided and taught us self-transcendence were lost, and now they serve self, the self in a different way. They serve our narcissism more so now. They serve the, the race for material, materialistic gain and prowess in the physical world at even the expense of a relationship with the sacred. So and today we don't know where to go for wisdom. We used to have that. You know, we used to have that. We know where, where you go, where the politics are happening. We know where you go for education. Where do you go for wisdom? Oh, no, but you don't, you don't need wisdom because that's the grand illusion. There that's are no wise people. what Luther thought, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like there there is something good to, you know, be said about the idea that you personally do have a relationship with God. Yeah. But I don't think that's the be all end all of it either, because you're not just a single singular individual in this world. You are the product. of. There still is a transcendent ideal of good, right? Um, Well, no. Well, yes, but that's not where I was going. Where I was going was you are the product of everyone that comes before you and everyone you've interacted with. You know, the mm. importance of having a church and a group of people is so you have that sapiential that sapi, sapi, no, structuring and community around you to help build wisdom within you. Yes. You don't just do it on your own. It needs to be done in fellowship. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and the bringing of, you know, you know, democratic decision-making within the church is also probably a pretty good thing, well, mm-hmm. unless you're a Catholic, because then you're like, oh, well, no, it's not what we do. But I'm hmm, Protestant. Um, <laughs> not really, not after this. I don't know I don't know what the hell yeah, he was yeah, all well, about. You see, like, so East Orthodox, when it split off from Catholicism, you know, prior to all this happening, where Catholicism had the split with the Protestants, um, the, the whole church split, and that big split... Um, the Orthodox are largely very much the same. They're very open-minded, too. When you meet Orthodox people, they're not all about dogma and shame and this and that. It's a very different version of Christianity. It's a beautiful, mystical, trippy version of Christianity. And maybe recognizing that God has this inbuilt goodness. He's the ultimate goodness, and he sent us an example, a human example of ultimate goodness for us to live up to it's a transcendent ideal it's greater than anything we can even imagine but it gives us a direction and 
taken that away from us just left us like a ship without bearings, without moors, without a compass, without a way to go. How do we, how do we do anything now? We don't understand how to move through the universe with this getting pulled out from underneath us. But that, that idea does give a firmness to reality that there are transcendent ideals that are firm. And so I think breaking away from the transcendent authority of God, not in his will and his command, but just in the simple fact that this is how he made the universe. It's imbued with love. We, we've, we lost track of that. Now, the Protestants had a lot of good points, and the church was also had, had its own secret police, and it was arresting heretics at that point for bullshit. So there was. Well, I don't. I don't think we should you know, be making. You know, we're not trying to take sides making here. things one way or another. Yeah, out of we're this. not. This we're we're trying to see. We're trying so to see around this whole thing as great as we can. Get back to where right? we were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this concept of inside the church and outside the church, so those who are saved and those who are not, and you can't really tell who's saved and who's not, and that creates quite quite the conundrum uh, for us. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you know that you're saved yourself? Yeah. Like. Like, how, how do you know? And whatever's outside the church, well, you have the state deal with that. Yeah. So you yeah. get two things at once. You get the separation of church and state, but you also get this <clears throat> Protestant work ethic that can help not just to others, but also to yourself prove your savedness. You know, if you do good for yourself and, you know, you're working hard and you don't take too much for yourself and you're humble and giving to your community and your church, then good chances are you're probably saved, right? So, you know, that's a a structuring, a an idea I practice that, you know, came around because of that dread of like, oh no, am I saved? Because God's, you know, saving you is arbitrary at this point, mm-hmm. you know, in this understanding. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, this is very confusing how this all goes about because the idea that the church should be more democratic within, Luther didn't believe that the people, the public, should have democracy. He just believed it should be in the church. And when the peasants were influenced by this, the democracy that started to come about in the church, influenced by Luther, he sided with the princes with authority. So outside the church, certainly, he didn't believe. No, you know, of course not. He didn't believe in democracy for the people, um, but this did bring about well, no, the idea of the separation of church and state. If you're, if you're outside of the church, you're a heathen. You're a heathen. You're, right. You're a horrible yeah. heathen, and you're not worth. There's no anything. way to know if those people are saved at all. Like, yeah. So why why bother them? They don't deserve. So he didn't believe in democracy for know. the public. So, yeah. so it, it, you know, roundabout way, we did get separation of church and state. The state should not interfere with the church. Each have their own ways of solving problems with their constituents. Well, and that does and this drives further secularization of the culture. Yeah, it pushes the church into the. It now it pushes the church off into a dark, dusty corner. Yes, that only weirdos go to, or yeah, yeah. or the overly concerned. Right. Yeah. You know? And and now like there's nothing. There's no way you can know if you're saved because right. it's just this arbitrary choice that God do, almost seems to do at random. He's got his reasons. Is our explanation for it? Yeah. Well, and that's we can't even figure out how to be good. So this this creates a new anxiety. This is Luther's double blind that he inadvertently presents to the world. Um, Only individual conscience 
can determine what's moral, what's moral and good, but your individual conscience is also inherently self-deceiving. So the, the solution that you mentioned was the Protestant work ethics. You know, people realize, well, okay, so I guess we can just work hard. And that makes life good. And if you're succeeding, you must be in God's graces. And you gave a much more thorough explanation, like you included showing humility and not spending too much and everything. And, and that is an aspect of the Protestant ethic that's, re that's really important to, well, to yeah, bear in because mind, I think. It, you know, like it, so the idea would go this way. If you're we lost that part if of you're it, doing, If you're working hard and doing successful in your life, mm -hmm. that must mean you have God's graces. But yep. if you're just taking it for yourself and only for yourself, then you're harming your neighbor, your church mm -hmm. members, and everywhere else. So now you're, you are not using God's graces in a graceful sort of way. Now yeah, you're e way egotistical and selfish, yeah. and yep. oh, now you're wretched again. You're not saved anymore. Yep. Let's kill you and take your stuff. Yep. Well, I'm not saying this is where we're leading in so, this, so they, but yeah, the, the but they tried to drive to through end. this with this yeah. with hard work, basically being yeah. humble, having hard work ethic. Which you know, now, there's this something to be said about to, that. No, there's not. There, there's something to be said about that, isn't there? Now, when you lose the humility side of it, yeah. and you're just trying to work hard for number one, that's what we kind of took with it, and we've run with ever since then. Yeah, there's something in kind of like you know some new agey type of stuff called the, what is it, the abundance doctrine or whatever idea that you know like you're you're pastor can have like you know a lexus and a rolls royce you know and and then or oh. you know and like a rolex and yeah. and and gold and all that stuff and it's great and everybody looks up he's like oh god must love him so much he must be great no he's just screwing you out of your money you know <laughs> taking the tithing and using it on himself or you know like doing the joel olstein and convincing enough dumb suckers to give him money and i hate to say it that way but Right. Yeah. There's uh, room for a lot of wrong turns in this world, and we have human, as humans, have certainly made. I think there's more room for wrong turns than right turns. I think that how how, how it works. Cause you, I think so. Yeah. Yep, yep. And you have to take a lot of wrong turns to find the right ones, yeah. don't you? Yeah, that's yeah. like mistake is in it is just part of self. You know, as part of improving at anything, you got to make mistakes. Yeah. So that's that's what we're doing. So we're trying to do this without judging ourselves and without taking any one side we're going to have our personal preferences yeah. um and our own personal opinions and beliefs but sure as we should because you know, we, well, we are trying to look at this objectively as we can along with you guys to, just to understand okay how did the humans get how did we get ourselves to this place to this point in time in yeah. history and and so I feel it's getting closer as, as we get into this my last part of this note is for now for the the protestants the bible becomes the pope yeah. so the, the, the word of god in this paper format has become whatever the pope I, you know i'm not a catholic so like i understand the pope is supposed to be like you know the highest person on the pyramid of closer to god i don't really subscribe to that i don't like you know I, yet again you know if there's two two or more of what is it if there's you know two more people on a hill discussing the nature of god in the universe that's church i'm, I'm more I'm, mm, I'm more of that i, that. And I like that I, I, you know I, catholic mass can be a beautiful thing but i don't like the adornments Very. with gold and the bible with all the gold on it, and everybody's dressed it up seems so like nice they and, made some wrong terms there 
and well the wow factor you know if you want to get people the in the extreme wow, extremity the wow of factor, it yeah but, it starts out with something beautiful like let's make this thing gold to celebrate the beauty of god's yeah. glorious creative nature and then all of a sudden everything's got to be inlaid with gold and all of a sudden now you're hunting gold everywhere that, you can get there's it. a there's a catholic church uh um actually right across the street from the church that i used to go to when i was a kid um and you go in there and all the pillars, the way they are designed. And if you look in the negative space in between the pillars, you see like devil heads, like, cause it has like, you know, like you can see in the dead space, the horns and, and also, you know, I don't like having the idols of the saints looking down at me. Cause the whole, like, you know, don't worship idols and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, Catholicism has a lot of things you could critique if you wanted to go for it, but Protestantism and all of its formats, as well and i'm sure you know i don't know enough about eastern orthodox but i'm sure there's certain things in there that you criticize too just as you can for any freaking religion or ideology or anything else i think at this point right now it's more important that we rebuild the transcendent wisdom institutions and take the best from what we got Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not be so consumed of like oh well you know now you're outside of the church you're a heretic burn her you know like yeah we're, we're back to that right now you know if you say the wrong words you know in public you know that used to be perfectly acceptable five freaking years ago now about burn him he's a witch he's not one of us if you yeah. don't use our language if you don't use our you know whatever it is we know you're not one of us now you're under suspicion and if you won't change the dangers mm-hmm. of certainty yeah we should always keep a little bit of room open in our minds on any subject room to be but not corrected. so open but not so open your brain falls out yeah i forget no. who said that but that's i, I like that too keep an open mind sure. but not so open your brain falls out yeah, yeah 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 but we can we can recognize things on levels of reliability and you know, I can be pretty sure about something, so it might be higher in the scale, but we don't ever have to be well, that's completely pla- certain. Well, that's, that's plausibility, and plausibility requires a bunch of different yes, divergent sources that all come together to mm-hmm. agree that so that's that. So things can be increasingly plausible, they're never a thousand hundred percent certain. Yeah, and, well, and then the certainty comes in if it actually happened. Yeah, like, so there's room for self-correction. Um, as an action like that's certainly yeah. a chair you're sitting on you're yeah, sitting right, on it right. you're using it as a chair mm-hmm. it was built as a chair it was sold as a chair i'm 100 certain that's a chair according to humans that use chairs at least as far as without a human to call it a chair it's just it's but, just <laughs> it's just, just here it's whatever it is it's an object and even an object is something that you need a conscious yeah, but if you leave it out there, the cats and the dogs will to, use it as a chair, too. They'll be like, oh, yeah. comfy. I'm getting in it. Yeah, you, you need a <laughs> conscious, animate being to be able to recognize objects and even to be able to, especially to be able to call them names like chairs. But yes, all right. So I think we're caught up. Let's yeah. go ahead and jump back in here, guys. What shocked Luther and shouldn't shock us is that Protestantism quickly fragments. Because when you give people no authority other than their own individual conscience, when you separate them from any claims upon them of tradition, any claims upon them of history or institution, any claims upon them of knowledge, 
The idea that they will all agree is actually a ridiculous idea. And so what happens and continues to happen to this very day is the huge and ongoing and accelerating fragmentation of Protestantism into denomination after denomination after denomination. And you get what has been called in, in other quarters, but can be applied here, the narcissism of small difference. Right? There's, you have to find that piece of evidence that shows that you are unique that shows that of all, out of all of the damned masses, God has elected you. Your uniqueness, your specialness, your unearned unique specialness has to be guaranteed. And if the more I'm like these other people, the more that comes into question. So not only am I driven by my own radicalized subjectivity in my interpretation, I'm also hungry for a mark of specialness for me that will show that I am saved. And so the narcissism and the fragmentation of Protestantism walk, march, in lockstep together, mutually accelerating. So notice what's happened. Take a look, like, right? You're getting, God is withdrawing. God's withdrawing. By the time of Luther, God has become very much this arbitrary will in a world that is nothing but a battle of wills. Think about how not that long after Luther you have Shakespeare. Luther is the great writer of German. Shakespeare is the great writer of English. And notice how somebody who is plumbing the depths of the human psyche, Shakespeare, in a way that, of course, has struck most of us as perennially profound, how absent God is from that world of Shakespeare. There's supernaturals there. There are the witches in Macbeth. There are ghosts in Hamlet. But God is not ever-present. And the supernatural is absurd and arbitrary and largely an agent chaos, and a destiny that thwarts people in their endeavors. It's telling how much God has withdrawn into being an arbitrary, absurd, supernatural agency that largely thwarts and undermines human activities. So, the Protestant Reformation is fundamental to our grammar of how we understand ourselves. And the problem is, even though we are, many of us are children of the secularization that is accelerated by the Protestant Reformation, we still carry that grammar around in our head. We have to work hard. We have to work very hard. And if we don't work hard, there's somewhere well, it's going to be revealed how worthless we are. And that 
we hunger for that unearned positive regard. We need to find that mark of our uniqueness that shows that we are chosen from the damned and that we will not disappear into nothingness and meaninglessness, but instead we will be adored for simply who we are. Now, all of these factors, the scientific revolution, the advent right, of the beginnings of capitalism, especially corporate capitalism, and the Protestant Reformation are all mutually reinforcing each other. They're giving people tremendous anxiety. So the scientific revolution is basically cutting you off from the world and the Protestant Reformation is basically orphaning you from the mother church and tradition and history. You, look, you, look, you have to bear it all. Your individual, you, alone, by yourself. You have to bear it all while simultaneously being told you don't have the resources or the capacity within you to do it. You're a nothing that has to bear it all. You're cut off from the world. You're cut off from reality behind illusion. There's a restless battle of wills. You're cut off from wisdom institutions with sapiential obsolescence. So this is a time of a lot of existential dread. You see the very thoughtful response of people like Pascal, who is now experiencing the cosmos not as a cosmos. Remember what cosmos means? A beautiful order that we can participate in and that will afford our self-transcendence? No. Pascal, who's a mathematical genius, he gets the new math. He looks out at the cosmos and he says, those infinite spaces terrify me. cosmos is now cold and terrifying. Its vastness is inhuman and crippling of the human spirit. There's an individual who arises same time and wants to address this anxiety. And we, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the comparison between Pascal and this person. This person is René Descartes. Descartes wants to take this grammar of the scientific revolution about math as the marker of reality and he wants to use it to come up with on his own, like a good Protestant, although he's Catholic, but on his own, from his own individual conscience. He wants to come up on his own. Forget the history. Forget the tradition. This is Descartes. I'm going to use the new math to come up with a solution to this emerging meaning crisis. Now Descartes a genius. And what he does is he invents a new psychotechnology, one of the most powerful psychotechnologies, a psychotechnology that has been so internalized into our culture and our cognition that it is almost transparent to us. We do not realize it is the lens by which we see and understand the world. 
Descartes liked to sleep in. It's probably led to his death because when he was, uh, had to go to Sweden, uh, he, they didn't let him sleep in and he got it, had to go out in the cold air and that's probably what led to his death. So he liked to sleep in. So one day he's laying in bed and it was the fashion uh, at the time, the architectural fashion, for there to be tiling on the floor and tiling on the walls. There's a fly fl flying around the room. Now, for most of us, that's where we, that's, that's it. That's all we get, fly in a room. But Descartes notes that if he, he noted that if he counts the number of tiles along, right, these three axes, he can come up with three numbers that will plot wherever the fly is in the room. Descartes invents Cartesian graphing, the system we use today, the X, Y, Z system. He takes the new algebra, the new way in which, right, the new way in which Galileo had been using math, and he pushes it even further. He invents graphing. And what, what psychotechnology, because that's what it is, this is a standardized strategy learned from your society, a socialized standardized strategy for information processing. What psychotechnology more means science to you than a graph? When, I'm, when I can make a graph, I'm doing science. When I can think graphically, I'm thinking scientifically. This is one of the most powerful and pervasive psychotechnologies, and he invents it. And this brings with it a powerful idea because he invents analytic geometry. Any geometrical shape can be converted into an algebraic equation. Equations capture reality. Because remember what Galileo has done. Math doesn't have to look like, it doesn't have to share the same gestalt as what it's representing. That has now been taken to its fulfillment in Descartes. Equations are not in any way like what they represent, but nevertheless, following up on Copernicus and Galileo, they are what cut through illusion into reality. Now this is a radical idea. Because of graphing and analytic geometry, we get this idea that we can grasp the world with equations. So you think that this captures something deep about the world. E equals mc squared, and you should. Because when you really understand this, you can take a paperclip worth of matter and you can smash a city to the ground. Men and women like gods. It's intoxicating, the power that it puts at our fingertips. It seems to provide overwhelming evidence that this way of thinking puts us deeply in touch with the fiber and fabric of reality. We are in fundamentally in contact. But it's not a contact of experience.
It's not the Aristotelian conformity. It's not participatory. It is purely propositional. It is purely abstract. It is purely symbolic. Now that's going to bring with it a radical idea. Descartes thinks, well, you know what? This is how I can understand the meaning crisis. All this anxiety, he didn't, of course, call it the meaning crisis, so that's anachronistic on my part, but I'm putting words into his mouth so that we can talk to him across space and time. There's all this anxiety, there's all this sense of disconnection. So Descartes understands the meaning crisis as a lack of a search for certainty. Conformity, in the Aristotelian, the Neoplatonic sense, right? Participatory, perspectival conformity has been replaced by propositional certainty. And of course, the thing about math for Descartes is it gives you certainty. That's why math cuts through all the illusions. That's why it allows us access to such power. So, Descartes thinks the answer to the crisis is to change transform our minds, not in any kind of spiritual transformation, but to transform our minds into machines of certainty. Minds that will only work mathematically and logically in terms of equations. The way to get certainty is to turn myself into a machine that represents the world through abstract, symbolic propositions and then manipulate those propositions in a purely logical, mathematical function. So what Descartes is proposing is that the way to address the anxiety of the age is for each one of us to adopt a method that will turn us into computers. That's what a computer is. Computer is originally a word applied to people, by the way. In the 1930s or 40s, you could have a job as a computer. That was your job. You would be given the task of taking equations and, prop and processing them in a logical, mathematical fashion. So, reasoning is being reduced to computation. We'll talk about what that might mean in a minute. The idea is, if we can make our minds into purely computational machines, then we will achieve certainty. Certainty in our beliefs, right, will give us what Descartes thinks we need in order to alleviate the anxiety 
that we're suffering. And of course, we, we do that, right? We, we are still... So we, on one hand, we have the cultural grammar of Luther and the narcissism and the radical self-doubt. And on the other hand, we have the Cartesian grammar. We seek certainty. We don't... We, we won't believe anything until it's certain. And of course, we vacillate between, I must accept it without any evidence or reason, Luther. I can only accept it if it's absolutely certain and beyond question, Descartes. And both of these, of course, are pathological. The first is pathological because if you completely remove people's agency in how they come to their beliefs, then you radically undermine any meaning in life they might possess. The other one, the pursuit of certainty. And there are individuals who seem to speak as if mathematical science will still give us certainty. That's an illusion, part of what we discover after Descartes. And Descartes was also surprised in that people ended up disagreeing with him. Is that science doesn't and can't provide certainty. These two equations I put up on the board. This is from Einstein. This is from Newton. What Einstein showed is things that Newton thought were certain, absolute space and time, these kinds of formula, actually don't possess the certainty that Newton thought they did. We'll talk a little bit later about why we can't except in very limited context. There are deep, deep reasons why we can't pursue certainty. And therefore, we can't seek certainty as the solution to the loss of connection. Connection to ourself, connection to the world, connection to other minds. Now, why does Descartes, it's, like, it's again this radical irony, it's very similar to Luther, why does Descartes attempt to address this burgeoning loss of connections, why does it actually result in exactly the opposite, an increased sense of disconnectedness? Well, part of it, of course, is the failure of the project of certainty. So you can understand the, eight, the 18th and the 19th, and especially right, the 20th centuries as scientific historical histor and philosophical undermining of the idea that we can achieve certainty. Of course, one of the great principles of modern physics is the uncertainty principle. But let's go back. So Descartes right, proposes that we should do this, but there's an individual at his time, who's a contemporary of Descartes, who makes it explicit and radical and then challenges Descartes with, with that radical derivation. Hobbes says, well, you know, all of this, what this means is that cognition is computation. Hobbes says that. He uses an older word. He says ratiocination, what we would now say is cognition. By ratiocination, I mean co computation. Cognition is computation. Now, there's a lot of people who were going to disagree right, with this model of computation. There's a lot of discussion right now. Brian Cantwell-Smith, a colleague of mine, 
at the University of Toronto, does a lot of important work on the metaphysics of computation. I am not trying to state that this is the absolute truth about computation. That, of course, would be ironic given what I just said about certainty. All I am arguing is historically this has been the interpretation of what computation was for people like Descartes and Hobbes. That's all we need for this argument. But Hobbes says cognition is computation. And then here's the radical idea he proposes. He takes a new idea, current at the time. Remember the idea that matter is a substance. Remember the old Aristotelian idea is matter is pure potential. But with Galileo, matter is a reality, right, in the sense of a substance. It resists, and it's good that it resists because I need something that resists my will in order to, to help me with my biases. So matter is inert. It's resistance. It's really there. I push on it. Notice that, again, all that's left of conformity is resistance of will. Hobbes says, well, matter is real. And what if I built a material machine that did computation? If cognition is just computation, and I can build a machine that does computation, and some of the first automatic machines are being built at this time, calculating machines, if I can make a material machine that does computation, I will have made cognition, I will have made a mind. Right there, at the heart of the scientific revolution, Hobbes is pro proposing artificial intelligence. Notice how artificial intelligence, oh, yeah, artificial intelligence is a child of the advent of the meaning crisis and the scientific revolution. It's not a modern idea. Artificial intelligence goes back to this time. And see, what is Hobbes doing with this? So, you know, think, you know, I said Galileo kills the universe and Copernicus, right, kills the reality of our sense experience. But Hobbes is doing something way more personal because up till now, right, you've been isolated inside your own mind, but at least still there. I still have something special, unique, something spiritual. Hobbes kills the soul. There's no soul. Because if artificial intelligence is right, if I can build a machine, a purely material machine, that is capable of co computation, then I will have made a mind, and I didn't have to involve any soul stuff, any spirit stuff in making it. And that's radical. We'll take a look at how Descartes responds to that, and how deep that response is woven into our culture and the crisis and how we move between AI and Descartes even today. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Wow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow.
Yeah. Yeah. The narcissism of small difference, the arbitrary uniqueness. If that does not hit home today, I don't know what does. With all the fracturing, you know, the this kind of this, which is also a this and this kind of this and this and this. Yeah, and the no narcissism longer, of small differences. No longer are you a person. You're a person that has like all these different little things that breaks them down into this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and these little stupid titles. Yeah. You get, and it's just, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So and it saw. comes from the fracturing of the Protestant church. Yep, the Protest- Protestantism know. fragmented. Like crazy, and it's still fragmenting to this day. You know, it's every yeah. it's every day you see a new church with some new yeah. title or weird. Yeah, because thing if there's no up, authority, you know? then your own individual consciousness. Then how can you have any agreed upon ideas? You know, everyone's mm-hmm. going to have their own version of it now. Um, since they all can't agree, there's increased fragmentation. So the narcissism of our small differences, our special little uh, version little spin on this idea of christianity is the one that's unique and is the one that has it all yeah and so that happens over and over and over and over again yeah. uh the narcissism and the fragmentation mutually accelerate one another which is a whole mess and this idea of god that we are in relationship with is now withdrawing there's nothing but arbitrary will left in place yeah and god is you know? is just one more player in a you know, game of wills. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, God just has this arbitrary will that's in a whole universe that's full of just a bunch of other battle wills, basically. And our wills, mostly, too, and our, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, nowadays our individual will has replaced God. We are our Mm -hmm. own gods. We worship ourselves. Yep. Um, You know, we are, God almost has become an antagonist. Yeah. To us. You yeah. Know, yeah. We start to see this punishes in Shakespeare. you and that's just this, you know. Right. Yeah. Ugh, this, yeah. This it's thing that gets in the it's way. It's like an agent of, of chaos that you. thwarts your attempts at, yeah. in your endeavors that you're fulfilling your dreams and, and everything. Yeah. It's because that's not how God's not even present at all in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. In Shakespeare, though, the supernatural is depicted, but whenever it is, it's absurd. It's arbitrary. It's an agent of chaos thwarting our will. So, yeah, God becomes. And the supernatural become this absurd notion in and of themselves, and we, yet we still carry this old grammar. Um, so we have these these ideas like today: if we don't work hard, it will reveal how worthless I am. And I need to, not that there's anything wrong with working hard, but the idea of the worthlessness being attached to that. We need to find our mark of uniqueness to be adored simply for who we are. It's narcissistic. You don't have to do anything, but just. No. You know, hey, this is how I'm unique. Just, so just give give me give me uh, give me your. Um, I got a freckle here, so yeah. So. Well, you know, like it, give to be give me your attention. You yeah, yeah, your attention, your energy, to yeah. your acceptance for who I am, just because I demand it. You yeah. Know? So we're so we're orphaned from our involvement with history and reality. We are worldless orphans left yes. to bear it all without the resources to, to do so. Jeez, yeah, the it, way he says that, it's so it's heavy. It's just like, man. man. And, of course, there's the existential dread of like, oh, well, crap. Yeah. I'm and the, cos- the cosmos is no longer this cosmetic, beautiful thing. Now it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. We're just this nothing that has to bear it all, and we're cut off from our wisdom traditions that we spent thousands of years developing. We just completely cut those out of the picture you know the process of self-transcendence is no longer an aim for for religion so at least in christianity here and this is 
what has become so much the cultural grammar of our, of our planet now. So the existential dread, um, Pascal, the mathematician experiences, you know, previously the cosmos, we saw it as ordered and aiding our self-transcendence, like the music of the spheres was something that we were a part in, and, and the music of the spheres is actually working on our behalf to help aid us in our, in our growth of our spirit towards God. It's not that anymore. Now it's, you know, the, the distances between the stars are terrifying to Pascal, so the cosmos becomes this terrifying dead place. And in this time uh, arises Rene Descartes. Descartes yeah. wants to use this new map of reality to come up with a solution, but he's he's using this new map, which is kind of faulty, you know. But he does, in the process, invent another powerful psychotechnology for for humanity, which is a very prevalent one. So much so that we don't even think about it. Graphing, Cartesian graph, Cartesian graphing, the idea that you he takes the new algebra and he invents this so this uh, standardized. Uh, graphing system and psychotechnology whenever we say that I love that Verveke brought in this definition here today he said it's you know to remind us what a psychotechnology is it's not just like a psychological technique it's a socialized standard standardized information processing tool that we you're using our minds for so we start thinking graphically scientific we start mm -hmm. thinking gra graphically in terms of science we invent and in, in through this uh, well, and, and, was the invention of analytic geometry yeah so we analyze things through yes. geometry yes uh and the idea that these equations capture reality and regardless yes. of you know like the like you said the equations won't you know e, e equals mc squared is not the the gestalt of energy and mass and the speed of light and all that stuff but it is sufficient enough for us to condense a very abstract idea into, say, a very small space. Yeah, and and, it, and it's usable. It's usable yeah. such that we can take, you know, in well, and it's in our technology it's, we can apply this science to it, use its tiny paperclip, like you said, a paperclip yeah. amount of matter to blow up an entire city. Well, like this use of math to make reason does make gods of men if it you will because really, really now does. we are masters yeah of once the we universe we are master you know we can get off the planet once yes. we can figure out how to go faster than the speed of light and yeah yeah then produce matter and maybe you know and ooh, and then yeah well getting the power of gods we already so, have the power of gods if we can blow up whole cities full of women yet again like pushing that. god further into the background yeah. too now longer is Okay, so if God's will is arbitrary and everything, at least it's a potent will. Well, now it's less potent because now we have the power of God within our hands. Yes, which yes. elevates our 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 personal selves above, even further above reality. And I really like what Daniel Schmachtenberger says in respect to this: that today we now need to somehow develop the wisdom of gods to yeah. be able to manage this power of gods mm -hmm. that we now have. And um, you know this this fact this. This new reality came into place because we proved that through analytic geometry that any shape can be converted into a formula, and then you can predict what that shape's going to do. This was so powerful, it helped us to recognize that equations can represent reality, and we can do all kinds of things with it, it, it to the point that we've developed atom bombs at this point now. So the idea that we can understand the world through equations, math, science, is 
separating us from the participatory relationship with reality. It's now purely propositional knowledge is the how-to, the be-all, end-all of everything. And it's so immensely powerful. It, Descartes recognizes the search for certainty here. Well, and his his interpretation but, of that meaning crisis uh, would be the lack of a search for certainty. So he was trying to yeah. really give us certainty through math yes and you know like well yes nothing is truly certain and like what verveke brought up you know the what are the uncertainty principle mm-hmm. um it's important to realize it's like you can't be too certain like you know how how many millions of people have we killed over the idea that we're certain or we're right really you know like i really? keep bringing this up but dude like you hold on to too many things. You think you're certain. You think you're right, and then only your way is right, and um, you are justified in doing what you do then because you can, you're doing yes. what is right. Then you can be you justified can, in doing anything. It's yeah. not evil anymore if you're killing someone that you see as evil. Yeah. Kind of so stuff. this uh, this uh, this certainty in math, some dark territory. The minds are the machines of certainty through equations. So people become computers. We can use co- our computational ability to come to well, he thought to come to certainty of how the yes. universe is, yeah. which is yet again trying to conform to the universe, but <laughs> doing it in a way that's trying to make the universe conform to you, opposed yeah. to actually conforming to it. Yeah, yeah. So you his know. way of trying to address the anxiety of our age is through propositional knowledge gained through abstract mathematical cal- calculation. His suggestion was that we must become as computers, like counting machines, which is what the original term computer comes from original computers were actually people that were good counters and problem solvers mathematical problem solvers so you call that person a computer because they were doing the computing (sighs) so yeah reason reason is now reduced to computation to achieve certainty to alleviate anxiety that's that's such a shame too because reasoning like you can't compute yourself into proper reasoning for like say what is right and what is wrong there is no computation for that we're now it's really starting to have to deal with that because we're creating sufficiently efficient, smart enough AIs that we're really going to actually have to teach some type of reasoning that is beyond computation. Yeah, it's going to have to be based off of some kind of moral groundwork that we can actually agree on. Yeah. So at this point (laughs) in time in history, there's a seesawing between radical acceptance just accept you know this arbitrary that's a good way to gift like a seesaw here yeah and the other is well this radical certainty yeah yeah so So you just just accept it but you gotta be certain too and it's like yeah yeah you got self-doubt and narcissism on one hand and then you have this obsession with certainty on the other and both are pathological Mm -hmm. um you know both basically remove well on one hand if you remove agency like you were saying you're undermining our own capacity for self-responsibility and meritocratic action and then on the other hand you have science can't provide certainty either we realize this like you said and certainty is no substitution for or is no solution for the lack of connection to the world and to god right yeah neither can can solve our disconnection and we know this because we've tried science through the 18th 19th and 20th centuries to do so to achieve certainty and now we know it, it can't achieve certainty it can achieve levels scales of probability sure but nothing is completely certain very few things are very certain in fact in philosophy you can pretty much boil it down to the to like this reality even could be 
um, a total illusion, right? So the only thing that we know is that we're here now. Well, the only thing we know is we we will eventually cease being here now. I'm not even sure if I'm here now, but I know there will become a point in time where I'm not. That's the only thing. Yeah, something that feels like an eye is here, right? But we don't know what the here is. Um, You know, so that's that's basically where we get left by all of this. And what a crazy dilemma, you know? It's like we went on a 300-year sidetrack. And then, you know... Since this happens, Hobbes challenges Descartes yeah. to, to catch us up. And, and he says, cognition is computation. And if cognition is computation, then our recognizing that matter is the substance of material reality and that all that is left of our conforming capacity to conform to the universe is our resistance to it, then what matters... So then the question now, what matters... So, it doesn't matter what's real. Well, um, the, what he asks is, what if I built... A natural, so a real, a resistive Thank machine yeah, what that, is, that did computation. I was trying to do a run-on sentence so there it, to it, yeah, bring my notes together. It'll become, yes. it, well, it'll become a mind, so this AI, but a mind without the soul. So like he said, Hobbes killed the soul. There's, yes. no, there's no spirit within this mind. There is no, um, you know, gothic love, if you will. There is no yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, supernatural within this mind. And, and, you know, you could even turn yourself into that. You're just, you know, like we call ourselves meat puppets. We just, you know, we do the thing too. So, right. so yeah, yeah. Hobbes posits all the way back in the beginning of the scientific revolution. If I built a material machine that does computation, then it there is no soul. And so he's literally like at this point prognosticating the future of our future artificial intelligence potential of that happening um you know he's saying he's saying if i can build a mind then there must not be a soul and that is a profound mind f word for humans i'm gonna try and not curse i already cursed once this episode but we're almost done (laughs) you can just say mind frack like they do mind in, frack that's you know, good that, that was works. a battlestar galactica and they're yeah. like yeah we're not actually saying the word so every other word was frack like frack, in that show but it was so like dumb. so well yeah but you know guys it's kind of corny but i think that's what they did in the books right uh did pop, they say frack in the books uh, not, probably i can't remember know. i think i read them but um yeah so if uh, uh who was it who you know killed the uh killed the universe that was okay uh, so galileo killed the universe and uh hobbes killed the soul yeah um because the universe is uh, uh, who who um copernicus killed sensor uh what was the term for that uh, sensory inputs our own self uh what do you call that i'm i'm losing terms here guys consciousness conscience not even that okay galileo kills the universe copernicus still kills since since reference basically like we can't believe our own minds our own eyes anymore it looks like the sun sets you know rises in the east and sets in the west um, but it's actually uh, well, going around us and I, I i would have to say then the idea that there is like you know a a reason for why things move as in like they have their spirit so the spirit within 
the within the things in the yeah. universe you know because if you know like say like the planets if they're doing this weird looping kind of like corkscrewy thing uh, it must be because they were divine to be that way and they have their own um their own uh, what was the old will. old term yeah. yeah will basically to move themselves or yeah. there was a purpose behind them moving that way yes. now we realize it's like oh well according to the math we can find out that actually yeah it looks like that but it works a lot better if it goes around us and now we've sent stuff out into space to look and be like actually yeah that definitely everything does kind of <laughs> we know for sure to do that um well and then we realize it's actually more corkscrewing through space in a in a uh another direction as we go along but you know this is i would have to say you know this period of time was one of our darker period of times and it's it's stain has not been washed from our minds and we seem to be repeating over and over and over again the worst parts of you know what the protestant revolution could give us and we're currently denying the better parts like you know Mm -hmm. the the work hard and good things will happen to you if you work hard and you're not too greedy about it yeah now it's just like i don't want to work just give me stuff because i want the state to take care of me which is another offshoot of unfortunately we took the spirit out of matter yeah Yeah. well and martin luther's removing of the necessity for wisdom schools Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm you know, now you just go to the university and you'll get it. But, you know, more and more university kids are becoming more and more depressed and more and more nihilistic and have no meaning in their life. So obviously we need something. Yeah. And, and of, of course, this does track up to an individual person and that individual person isn't solely wholly responsible. We're no, not blaming no, definitely these individuals, not. But they're no. good markers through the points in history. And we yeah. can see where the major shifts that they helped mm-hmm. to accelerate yeah. um, the major ideas that they invented and brought about. Um certainly help bring about this idea so so yeah god at this point in history he's no longer the prime mover and it's all just cause and effect and and what's what's interesting is that later on we were able to try and correct this notion and recognize okay there's cause and effect but maybe there still was a prime mover there can't still actually be a prime mover that accounts for that allows for there to be that created his universe with cause and effect built into it well we didn't we didn't we didn't create this math so our idea of god is growing up with us we didn't we excuse me we didn't create what math describes and the rules that rule the universe we're just discovering it so what created that well that's just it because the more we discover the bigger the universe gets the more ineffable and complex and unfathomable as distances become. So it's like the glory of God, this potential being that we're speaking of, it only becomes more evident, you could say. The sophistication of it, of its operation, of become its creation becomes ni- more evident. If you evident. don't become too secular and nihilistic, yes, yes. I could say that. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it is easy to become very nihilistic yeah. in this world and just say, well, what's it, what, yeah. what's it all matter? Nobody listens to me anyway. Why do I even bother? You know, like whatever, you know, it's like, it's easy to get down that route. Just be like, okay, well, if we are just a flea on a flea fleeing through space, then what does it matter? Like, you know, if I'm going to die in less than a hundred years, why does it matter? Yeah. You know, if, if there's always going to continuously be suffering or at 
threat of DACA, why does it matter? Yeah, you right. Know, like it's easy to become nihilistic. It's understandable. People would be particularly without you know wisdom traditions and you know, and I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily saying just monasteries or anything like that, but you know, like we could help recreate things where it's pe- where people intentionally go to get together and have deep philosophical discussions about how to be and live yeah. in the world and 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 and, and how to revel and, and embrace in the uncertainty that yes. comes as being alive yeah. and then you get feedback from those yeah, people sure. you get sapiential feedback and, and you might not ever become more certain you just feel a little bit better about the uncertainties of the seas that you're riding currently that's it. Like you have more yeah. power to be able to sure. ride along. And, yeah, because you never know how that ocean is going to play, but the mm-hmm. better a captain you are at sailing your ship, you could say. Mm. You know, so we can improve ourselves to be able to sail the uncertainty of reality, and we can become more comfortable in this reality as we become com- as we learn how to surf uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, practices like meditation and contemplation and... Well, you know, the moving meditative practices like Tai Chi and things like that, they help tremendously with this. Going about and classifying what works and what doesn't from each other. And by classifying, I mean like separating out and like, you know, like separating out like when you classify stones from different sizes. Too. So mm-hmm. sift out, work out, you know, the obvious crap that doesn't work. And then the reason why it doesn't work and the reason why we went there. Yeah, to help, you know, to help. Uh, what would the word be? Um, inoculate us to doing there it again. Go. Yeah. And then find the really good things that are like, man, that's that's worth really look, still looking into and reapplying and mm-hmm. maybe modifying a little bit and going. Yes. So it's re- it requires looking backward and forward and now at yeah. our feet at the same time. And doesn't it make sense that the only way that we would be able to do that effectively is to do so together? Like uh, numbers of us at once in fellowship trying to figure it out well, together sure. rather than just us by ourselves trying to figure it out well we learned that from like competing epi- our ideas episode you know? one or two we needed we created our earliest psychotechnologies were in order to distribute our cognitive network between many people yep. through time and space yeah um and then we well we created things like you know languages and literacy and stuff like that in mm-hmm. order to communicate yep, with my, my mind to not just somebody else's mind but also my future mind and my past mind and mm-hmm. other people's future mind and past mind so we need more people and this is where it's like um with the martin luther's idea of your you have your personal relationship with god and one half is right because it is you having this relationship. But in the other, you do need other people to help garner wisdom, come to a better understanding of what your personal relationship is with the divine, yeah. and do it together. That's what church is. Yeah. And even if it's one other person, if even if you're the most honorary person, you can only get along with one other person, you need other people to do this with mm-hmm. you. And, well, you read books that other people wrote. Yes. You, get, you gain insights from what, other people had to say about things yes and 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 still in reality with um like primordial like the shapes like the platonists the neoplatonists Mm -hmm. had this idea of these primordial shapes that existed platonic solids platonic solid platonic thank you platonic solids so it's like these always existing uh what we call like the model for what that shape is that exists in reality it's not a solid version of it, but there is like an all triangle for all triangles, and then triangles mm-hmm. are possible. 
kind of thing. And there's like yeah. this underlying stra- substratum to universe. There's platonic solids and transcendent ideals like love and things and things like that. Yeah, well, we tend we've we've always tended to use, at least since that time and maybe before shapes to help us keep track of multiple ideas and multiple things at we once. Did. You know, like yeah. you know, like the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Oh yeah. That's a triangle, and throughout these lectures, we've had many times where you'll have these triangles, but if you pay attention to like how you write stuff out, there will also be these squares or these looping mm, yeah. other shapes that happens, and you know, humans are naturally very shape-oriented. Like We can look at the skies and the random shape of the clouds and see a bunny or see a snake or see a dragon or you know, see Jesus in a bit of toast yeah. you know, and, and stuff like that. That's just actually just a function of how our brain grew up to try to yeah. find like a lion's face sticking out of a bush that's going to eat us right 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 right. Yeah. so well, these are very primordial um circuit circuits they within are our brain. And we do have circuits that recognize things like agopic love too we we can recognize and perform well we got a we whole set take of, on the mode of agopic love we got a whole set of uh, emotions and feelings that really stick mm-hmm. with us when we feel that yeah and that, we see it in other animals can experience agopic and show agopic love even you know like mother animals for their yeah. you know and, and if they stick around long enough because some just don't care some are just like okay yeah, pick, but you see self-sacrificed throughout uh animals well you can see that in the an- humans. you can you can see that in the animals we've domesticated with like you know dogs like if you treat your dog right and then you get a puppy yeah. your dog will treat your puppy like you treat your dog mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then that puppy will do the same yeah, thing even in the wild of, you'll see you know yeah um but that, that agopic love does occur um now can can we see this as something that is a transcendent part of the universe it's 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 a platonic solid of its own because we're gonna have to find ways to come up with moral ideals that we can all agree on that much is for sure or or at least agree not to like kill each other over (laughs) (laughs) seems like it'd be a good idea man like that's all what's the compelling reason that you don't have to agree with me but can we agree just for you to live up to that yeah you know or wish the worst things upon each other yeah can we get over that we can't agree on or yeah we can agree on it without it being instantiated as transcendent to us something that supersedes all of our interpretations of reality that already exists that always has and always will and it's a fundamental aspect of reality that to not live up to is to one's own detriment you could say we experience we experience the hell of our lives when we live with less love agape love the wisdom of love that's the real hell in my book is not the the hell that some arbitrary authority of god sends you to because you were bad it's or that you weren't saved it's the hell you send yourself to when you separate yourself from that's why you have a protestant version of hell and then the catholic idea of purgatory perhaps well and then also like i I think my perception of hell is probably closer to where orthodoxy because there's this you know idea of like i got this from listening to a few you know jewish speakers when i was much younger but this idea of Hell is what you make out of it when you separate yourself from God. Because the worst punishment, mm. the worst pain you could ever experience is separation. Like a child experiences when you separate them from the group. Or like in worst case scenarios, if you completely neglect the child, they will yeah. not grow to be or normal Or if you ever got lost humans. as a kid. Did you ever get lost? Oh yeah, man. Kid? I got lost man, in like, I got it was lost like a Martins a or something. That's a scary. Like, and I got lost in the, in the woods at a campground. Oh, man. You know? 
and it wasn't like deep in the woods or anything. I just got lost basically in the campground that we were staying at. And then I find my way back to where our people are at, but it's not my people, it's other people. And so I had to wander around from campsite to campsite until I've like, until someone noticed me, it's like, Hey kid, you need some help. <laughs> and like, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to find these guys. These are my parents. I can't find them. One of my like, most recurring nightmares. Six, you know? So that yeah. was so scary for a second. And then I remember the reality of just like the feeling of the moment of looking and not knowing where I was. My most reoccurring dream dreams when I was a kid was the being lost. You know, you're walking somewhere, you turn around, and things are different. You mm. spend the whole dream trying to find your way back home mm. or to where you're at, but you mm. can never find your way yeah. back home. And then that perpetual oh, lostness. I did. I have that. Yeah, I had um, one like that. And the terror really, of yeah. the lostness. And, and not just like, you know, the hot terror of, you know, like something chasing you, but the cold terror of, you know, being lost in like an insanely huge building mm -hmm. with nobody in it and like nothing, you know, and that lost of being in liminal spaces only and, you know, yeah. Yeah. that, that kind of thing, you know, and that in a lot of depictions I've seen of hell are very much that you're lost in these liminal spaces where nobody else is there. No way out. Yeah. And then there's other depictions, you know, people, I forget who said this, but, you know, hell would be, you're in a place where all your stuff, the only thing you have left is your vices, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, your, you know, your addiction, no real fulfillment. Your, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, you can go even further, you know, like the, the grand punishment for somebody would be to be in a river and perpetually thirsty, but you can never drink and, you know, like stuff like that. Wow. So, uh, my my perception of hell though is like well that's like I li trying to just living according to your biases is like that yeah and I don't I don't think you know I don't think of God as this evil demiurge so I I, I tend not to think like oh if you've made mistakes in your life you're going to hell it's like no. no if you actively separate yourself and cut yourself off from God the world that like is hell. hell and we can also and make a, you are. A rea our reality of the world a hell by living in sure. that way in mass when well, too many of us are operating that way our whole world starts to become look at the in most, some aspects. look at the most powerful people we have that are going to start making or trying to make all the decisions for everybody and i can tell you they're godless people they have mm -hmm. no purpose for god they think of themselves as god yeah. you know the carl schwabs and the bill gates and mm -hmm. all that stuff that want to change the world it's us, the yeah, Bill Gates, who can do this. Finds a way to make money off anything. If you see that he's, hey man, he's good at what he does. Starting that, to man. donate a large amount of money somewhere, and it looks like he's just being a kind benefactor. Yeah. He's out there just helping. Um, no, they're, they're, they're investments. Yeah. He's going to end up making money off of that. And, you know, yeah. hey, whatever, get it. Major but, investments into vaccines years and years and years ago. And now he's rebuilding you know, one of his partners. It, it's stocks that he owns. And, yeah, the, the the most hellish things that have happened in the world within recent human memories has happened from godless people with too much power trying to make the world in their image. And their image is a image of hell because they live without God, which is hell. And they make it on they the world. They don't believe in or recognize people's inherent goodness. Nope. Nope. You're either useful or you're not. And there will become a time that even the most useful person is no longer useful. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and then they That's, take you out, you know. Sounds frighteningly Marxist. Well, even beyond, you know, like pre-Marx and everything. But yeah, you yeah. know. Like, well, we, we dealt with World War One and World War Two, which was nothing but, you know, madmen with ideologies making hell of the world that had no connection to god yeah yeah right you know as so. we become increasingly disconnected from a sense of the sacred 
we are much more likely to do serious damage to ourselves, our own <coughs> sense of inner well-being, and to the world's wider well-being. Yep. So let's uh, let's uh, do 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 what we got to do to start making some meaning in things because we're worth it. The world's worth it. The universe is worth it. Yeah, God, God, God's worth it, guys. Yeah, we are we are intertwined and interconnected with everything and everyone around us, and we are not so separate as we think. Realizing the actual I is is not just recognizing one's own inner authenticity. To recognize and have access to that authenticity, I, I feel that one must recognize themselves as a part of a great dance with reality. And in that great dance, we are in a, re- a relation with everything and everyone. And we gain our identification and our ideas from everything and everyone around us. So mm-hmm. why not? How could it be any other way? So I'm turning into pumpkin mode. Yeah, guys. It's about that time, but we love you all. Thank you so much for joining us. This was um, a rough one, but yeah, this I told you that this one was a little bit heavy. Um, it's worth it's worth going. But not to worry, we're, you know we're gaining increased clarification. Uh, we're, we're getting an understanding of where we are now. We're starting to see where we are on this map, and we're starting to see that we even built in this map itself and understand how the map works, and that there were other maps before it, and. Uh, and we also recognize, oh, that's right. I work much be- better when I team up my cognition with yours. And multiples of us working on this together. Maybe we can figure out a way to orient ourselves. Yeah, because just being this little stupid island, I- worldless island orphan right. is not yeah. cool. No, it's not comfortable either. It's not <laughs> as fun like or it. anything. It's a lot more fun to figure out reality with now, our mind friends you, and our family. I don't like huge groups of people either, but you know, I, 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 I don't like this this hopeless being completely alone in a group thing and it's yeah it's not, it's not pleasant and yeah i don't think we're as comfortable with large groups as maybe we, we, we would be in different circumstances because of the way of things because of that uh, in me personally there's rampant lo- loud noises and stuff my brain gets confused and i get frustrated and then i, yeah. I tweak out and it's, yeah. it's no good for nobody <laughs> So I play music because I can be on one end of, you know, I can hide behind my instrument a little bit. You, know? you need to get to get out there and express and share yeah, with people. A, a reason yeah. to socialize. All right. All right, fam. All right, guys. No more of these notes. We love you guys. Go out there and uh, be a part of this change. Yep. Become the change that you wish to see. We change the world from the inside out every day. I've been That's DJ. what we do. Uh, yeah. I've been Chris. And we'll talk to you soon.